Hey friends, I hope you're really well. This is Jono Fisher, and I want to welcome you to The Wake Up Project, where everything we do is about inspiring you to live a kind and courageous life. And by being part of this global community of nearly 200,000 people, you'll enjoy listening to conversations with extraordinary people, receive nuggets of wisdom, and get special invitations to live and online Wake Up events. And don't forget our best offering of all, a beautifully designed free pack of kindness cards. Yep, free. Simply visit wakeupproject.com, fill out your details, and a real-life pack of cards will arrive in your mailbox in a week or so. All we ask is that you use these cards to do an anonymous act of kindness for someone. You see, this is our end game, for you to have the courage to be kind to yourself and others and to do it over and over again. Thanks so much for spending some time with me today. I really hope you enjoy this episode. G'day friends, it's Jono here, and I want to welcome you to this episode of the Wake Up Project that's entitled The Science of Human Goodness. And before we dive into that interview, I just want to remind you of two upcoming events that we have. The first one is called Engage, which is a five-month program that's been developed by the Search Inside Yourself Leadership Institute. And the reason it's been developed is really to give people uh, an opportunity to dive deep into an advanced curriculum that's been developed by Search Inside Yourself. The other reason is to give people an opportunity to be part of a really unique community. And what I mean by that is that this group uh, or this program is limited to uh, 70 people. And so it's quite a tight group and it's application only. And the reason it's application only is to really give, um, really give the best opportunity for the people who are accepted into the program to be amongst like-minded people. So it also is about wanting to select a very diverse group of people so that there can be a lot of learning between the 70 people that end up being part of the program. But essentially what, how this program works is the, it's bookended by a five-day retreat at the beginning of the program, a five-day retreat at the end of the program, and every month you'll have access uh, through broadcasts with I think it's about 17 uh, leading scientists and authors and business leaders. Uh, so it's actually twice a month you'll have those that access. You'll also be put into um, small pods of people for you to connect more deeply with the group of people you're with. And you'll really form this, um, this community of people who are really dedicated to becoming mindful champions in their lives. And so if this, any, any of this sounds of interest to you, um, feel free to head on over to siyengage.com.au and you can apply for the program there. The second 
uh, event that's coming up is the Mindful Leadership Forum, uh, which we're holding in November of this year. It's the fourth time we've run this program, and it's really about dedicated dedicating um, an event to inspiring people to lead with more self-awareness, authenticity, and compassion. So what we do is we bring together about 15 speakers, um, inspiring people, with about 500 good-hearted participants. And over two days, we have uh, TED style talks, we have case studies, masterclasses, mindfulness sessions, and really uh, the opportunity to connect with one another over wine and good food and, and during the breaks. And this year we have a special two for one ticket offer. And this allows you to buy one ticket and get the other one for free. So you save 50%. And Last year when we did this, I think they sold out within the hour. So if you're interested in getting a code uh, to be part of this sale, you can visit mindfulleadershipforum.com and all the details will be there. So uh, on to our conversation today. You're in for a treat uh, in this conversation. It's like a science lesson from a super smart person. And actually, this conversation with Emiliana Simon-Thomas is the science lesson that I've always really wanted to have. Emiliana Simon-Thomas is not only super smart, but she is also deeply human. She's at the forefront of a scientific revolution that is uncovering the deep scientific and evolutionary roots of compassion. And as the science director for the Greater Good Science Center at the University of California, Emiliana specializes in the biological underpinnings of pro-social states like compassion, kindness, and empathy, and how these benefit our well-being and our psychosocial functionings. And actually, the programs she offers are so popular that she, on one online format, there are something like 400,000 students that participate from all around the world. And for me personally, it's so refreshing to hear a scientist of Emiliana's caliber present a case for human goodness. I mean, for most of us, we've been raised with the understanding that humans are basically self-interested or sinful or brutish or even warlike. And during this conversation, Emiliana turns these ideas on their head and she shares a very scientific view of how we are actually wired for compassion and connection. And at one point, Emiliana says, this is a quote, there, there's no scientific evidence to suggest that we like hurting each other. And then she went on to say, quote, biologically, we're built to dedicate ourselves to each other. Now, I believe this scientific understanding is revolutionary and has enormous impacts for how we see each other, for how we see ourselves, and actually the world at large. And as I was listening to Emiliana share research and uh, findings and explaining the human physiology, 
I was reminded of a talk that I recently heard by Tibetan Rinpoche, and his talk was entitled, quote-unquote, Proclaiming Humanity's Goodness. And in this talk, he spoke about how central it is for humans to connect with their fundamental human goodness. That he said about our nature, wait for it, that our nature is radiant, luminous, playful, and friendly. And that's very different than I think how many of us traditionally and in our culture have viewed human nature. And he said that only when we connect with this part of ourselves can we genuinely live a brave and confident life. During this conversation too, Emiliana talks about the achievement model of success that dominates our culture and the perils of misunderstanding the word happiness. Rather, Emiliana talks about the importance of experiencing our rich and diverse emotional palette, including emotions like anger and sadness. The reason I bring all this up is that I think we are living at a time when science and wisdom are starting to shake hands. And it's my hope, as you listen to this conversation, that you will begin to let go of what Emiliana calls, quote, pervasive myths about human nature. And may it help you to live a more meaningful and kind life. Enjoy the conversation. First of all, I just want to say thank you so much for coming to Australia. You know, it's a long way to come. Oh my goodness, what a privilege. It's mm. been super fun. What an adventure. Already we've just, I mean, I've had a really great time and I know it's been a joy for my family. And it's such a treat to just kind of escape from the regular routine, deliberately and knowingly, to say, sorry, school, we've been getting these calls and messages, because even if you tell the school that they're going to be gone for two weeks, there's still some office and some automated person that, or machine that sends out a message every day saying, oh, your daughter was not in school today, <laughs> so we're getting them every day twice from right. two schools. <laughs> but, you know, it's okay. This is yeah. life. This is adventure. And and a learning experience. Teachers who we talked to are really enthusiastic. So, yeah. 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 no, it's it's been a joy. So, thank you for inviting me, mm. and um, I, I'm I'm excited. I'm excited to be part of this conversation. I'm honored to be part of this community of thinkers. I really look forward to meeting some of the other presenters mm. in an hour and a half or so. Awesome, so, awesome. Yeah. Well, I'm curious to know how you actually got into this particular field because it's a very unique field to be in. Um, was it like a personal kind of interest initially or did you fall into it? Like what, that was the backstory. Yeah, I mean, there's a like childhood backstory. Um, my parents both described themselves as recovering Catholics who came to the West Coast from where they grew up in, in the middle of America and um, or in the middle of the United States and kind of discovered a Buddhist philosophical lifestyle and had some sort of spiritual habits in that in that sphere and um, my my father really took to the suffering narrative and when I was frustrated as a kid or when I was complaining or things weren't going right um, he would say to me you know life is suffering <laughs> it's sort of like really I don't know how to describe it at the time it just felt very heavy-handed and dismal and I would have this argument with them where I'd say, no, it's not. 
Life is really fun. I mean, bad things happen, but we're supposed to be enjoying ourselves. We're supposed to be having fun. So we need to try to figure out how to arrange things so that we feel good. And, and if things are bad, we shouldn't just wait there in the bad feelings. We, we need to like move and change things. And he would kind of come back with a more philosophical, esoteric, well, even that seeking is a source of suffering. <laughs> anyway, so we had this debate and, you know, I'm maybe 11, 12 years old having these thoughts. And so that was kind of early on my, my, my sense that there was something more to how we can think about ourselves and about life and being kind of optimal um, or and optimistic. Uh, as a young student, I was really drawn to quantitative fields. I was strong in the mathematics and sciences, um, less so in the arts and humanities. And I thought I was going to study physics. I had a really wonderful, my gosh, I wish I could remember his name and thank him properly, wonderful physics teacher. I can see his face. You know, he was a young guy, just a lot of fun, made physics the thing that you wanted to go and think about more. And um, so I went to study physics. And where I was studying physics, the approach was really kind of old-fashioned somebody with their back to the chalkboard writing equations, you know, never looking at you, never kind of doing anything playful. And that kind of made me look wider. And I was at a, a small liberal arts college in New York that had a, a new major or concentration called cognitive science. And cognitive science was this kind of merging between psychology and you know, how the mind works and a really more quantitative approach. So there was you know, an emphasis on neuroscience and on measuring physiological uh, signals that were associated with certain mental states and experiences. So I did that. And I, after that, there was no turning back. I was really hooked on trying to understand the human mind and what the mechanisms of awareness and conscious experience were. Um, I started out studying how neurophysiological systems supported higher executive thinking, so sort of focused attention and working memory, So, sort of how do you make decisions and take lots of information into account. And as I was doing that, I just noticed on my own accord a total avoidance of all things emotional. It was like everybody's intellect was treated as a separate thing and emotions were kind of just optional, strange things that didn't make a difference. But when I was talking to people, they really did. It really made a difference if somebody felt open and trusting and safe or if they felt angry and agitated or if they felt distressed and fearful. Like There are so many varieties of how those sort of present moments can influence how you process information. So I got really interested in that. I went back to Berkeley and I studied how emotions and thinking interact. I was under a neuroscience mentor and so in neuroscience emotions are basically like positive, negative, highly arousing or not very arousing. That's kind of the, the realm of Cartesian emotional space. <laughs> and um, that's fine because it's really hard to systematically elicit emotions in people who are coming from different places and largely because it's just a relatively new uh, 
thing people want to try to do, right? We've been studying perception for, you know, 200, 250 years, so we know how to test visual perception or auditory perception really well, but how to study emotions is, is a newer thing. Um, after studying how making people upset influence their ability to process in objects in space or objects over time, which was wildly interesting, um, I, I just got really interested in the other end of the spectrum. You know, what's, what, what happens when people are actually feeling again, warm, safe, trusting, affiliative? How does that influence decision making or just your general comportment in the world? And that's in combination with personal life events, you know, becoming a parent. You know, I thought things were going to be different. I thought I was going to have a baby and hire a nanny and go back to my, you know, overachieving academic <laughs> lifestyle. But I didn't feel that way. You know, the cocktail of oxytocin and serotonin and whatever else happens. I wanted to spend more time with, with my family and with my, with my new daughter. And um, that, again, just sequence of events led me to work with Dacher Keltner, who was studying compassion and love of humanity and awe and these very, again, pro-social states, the states where you orient towards the goodness in others and cultivate this sense of safety and trust. And... Um, That, that, that's, that, that's basically where I am now. I'm still doing and that. And that was with Dak, is it Dacker? Is that, is that how to pronounce right. his word? Yeah. Uh -huh. um, you started working with him prior to the Greater Good Science Center, or was that as part of that? When, no, when no, did so that I, I did happen? my postdoctoral research with Dacker. Okay. And, and um, we studied the neural underpinnings of compassion. So we put people into a brain scanner and we showed them stimuli that are reliably illicit people's self-reported feelings of compassion, and we looked at which structures in the brain sort of lit up, to put it colloquially, but really which structures are using the most oxygenated hemoglobin, <laughs> to put it technically. And um, yeah, so that, that was the beginning of, of really working with Dacker closely. Uh, from there, I went to Stanford and worked with, with Dr. Jim Doty, who you know, mm -hmm. at the Center for Compassion and Altruism Research and Education, and practiced at saying that. <laughs> I could answer the phone if you wanted. <laughs> um, and then from there, which I, I did love working there, it was delightful and stimulating, but it was another situation where I was commuting and spending long hours away from my family. And by that time, I had two kids. Hmm. And uh, when the opportunity presented itself to come back and work at the Greater Good Science Center, I was super grateful and enthusiastic. And so that's where I've been since. Hmm. And I think there's probably a lot of people who aren't necessarily familiar with the Greater Good Science Center, particularly here. Uh -huh. And yet I think it has such a unique kind of role yeah. uh, in kind of the scientific world. I mean, could you just kind of tell us a little bit about what it does, its purpose? And, yeah. yeah, so the Greater Good Science Center was founded about 15 years ago at UC Berkeley. Some generous donors basically came to the psych department and said, we want to support thinking and research and getting the word out about how people can get along better. And what, why, why don't we, how, why don't we crack this nut, right? How come we don't know how to get along with each other? And we're, we've been around for quite a long time. We're very intelligent. We can do these incredible things with technology and architecture and art, but we still have these major problems 
getting along. And so um, Dacker at the time was like, hey, yes, <laughs> I understand what you're trying to do. This is what I'm trying to do. And um, so they first developed something called the Center for the Development of Peace and Well-Being. Okay, so that was how it started. It was that name for about four years. Um, Dacker found that it was a little bit challenging to appeal to the parties of donors that could be out there mm -hmm. with that name. Um, and meanwhile, um, the, the initial effort was one, to support research, right, to give funding to postdoctoral fellows and, and UC undergrads who are studying issues like uh, conflict reconciliation, uh, relationships, the dynamics of relationships, um, feelings like compassion and love and gratitude. Um, how, do, how, do, how do these work and, 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 and how do we foster them and, and why is it beneficial? So this was kind of the beginning. Um, there was also always a very strong journalistic dimension to the Greater Good Science Center and the idea was to take the cutting edge science and bring it to the public more quickly than is typical in academic research to journalism pathways, right? That can be sometimes, yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah. It can be 10 years between the time that some really incredible finding happens in the scientific sphere before it, it, it is just written about in a way that is available and, and written and accessible to a popular audience or someone who's not an expert. So the greater good just made that their mission. We're gonna just follow all the studies that are being done, that have been done, we're gonna write about them. So there was a print magazine for a few years, which was beautiful um, and people loved it. It then became kind of clear that doing a print magazine maybe was contrary to environmental kind of basic beliefs and just a little bit not sustainable. And so they moved to a fully web magazine uh, sort of structure. And, and now The Greater Good basically still does those things. It, it publishes a magazine, articles every day written about important scientific studies that have revealed a key new facet of why it's beneficial to perhaps you know, develop a gratitude practice or engage in, in a, a stronger habit of mindfulness or what, whatever it could be. Um, the emphasis is typically on characteristics or qualities that really strengthen your ability to connect with others in a mutually benevolent and beneficent way. Mm. Um, we also have events, so we'll have a full-day workshop in December, I believe. We have a two-day workshop on self-compassion with Kristen Neff and Chris Germer. So we bring people who we know are doing this work mm. over to where we are, and we set up a, a day or, or maybe two days for them to really share their work, their body of work, and the practical tools that people can derive from it. Um, we always let, or we're always interested in inviting people to join these kinds of events virtually. Um, we still have our research support sort of wing. We, we give out fellowships every year to UC Berkeley students. Given other pending uh, or funding opportunities, we may also give funding out to, to a larger audience of, of researchers. It just sort of depends on a program or an initiative. Our most recent one was on expanding the science and practice of gratitude. And in that one, we funded undergrads, grad students, and currently we have a few uh, postdoctoral researchers who are getting funding for their, for their work at different universities around mm -hmm. the nation. 
So yeah, that's the greater good. Of course, the last thing is the massive open online course. So about four years ago, we realized, well, we've been thinking about it for a long time. We've known that we've had these really wonderful uh, library or archive of videos and articles and resources and practical tools about well-being that, uh, and, and again, sort of pro-social um, potential and qualities and characteristics. And um, we've always thought, well, how can we put these together in a course, like a, a sort of systematic experience of learning over time? And um, through various opportunities, it became clear to us that UC Berkeley was partnering with edX. edX is a really well-built, well-established online platform for learning that has lots of other massive open online courses. So we built ours on that platform. And now we have, we're in our one, two, three, four, five, one, two, Fine. We're in our fifth launch of the Science of Happiness on edX, and uh, it's a 10-week online course. We've got over 400,000 people who have registered over the course of that time period, and um, it is. It's actually really incredible. It's incredible to us. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So. I mean, there's a couple of questions that I have that come out of that. One is, what do you think it is that has that kind of interest? Because you know, that's, that's an enormous level of interest, you know, yeah. like, and yeah. what, what's that kind of signaling in culture to have people going in, in those numbers, we really yeah. want to learn that, you know? Well, you know, the first time we launched it, which was the fall of 2014, Pharrell Williams had just released his I'm Happy song and video, which was wildly popular. So I think in some way, we reach a very different audience with the MOOC. Um, edX is a tech savvy, younger, generation or cohort of the population than, than our typical audiences at the Greater Good Science Center. We usually appeal to sort of highly educated people over 35. That's who we naturally reach. In the course, we're reaching 26, 27-year-olds. That's the, that's the majority of the people who are engaging in our course, which is really wonderful for us because mm -hmm. we're reaching a new you know, audience than who we've, who we've reached before. So, um, you know, after Pharrell, that's my first answer. I, I just think that we have struggled as, a, as, an, as an organism with, you know, what's the meaning of life and why are we here and what's our purpose for a long time? And in the U.S. in particular, we've adopted this very achievement-oriented model of success and well-being, right? The idea is you work really hard, you have goals that you can put on a list. I'm going to get married to a very attractive spouse. I'm going to have a certain number of children. I'm going to have a certain income level. I'm going to have some freedom to take some comfort comfortable vacations. And once I've got all that sort of lined up, I'm going to be happy. Like, that's what it is. It's kind of like the baking a cake model. Fulfill all of these, check off these boxes, and and happiness will come. And um, I think as a as a, as a culture, in mass, there are enough people who've hit that and not felt as happy as they thought they were going to be. Uh, either it's parents kind of 
relaying that to their kids. And as a kid, I kind of remember people going, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I'd be like, oh, maybe I'll be a lawyer. And then some adult who was a lawyer in the room would be like, oh, don't do that. You'll hate it. You know, mm. I'm going to be a teacher. And some teacher in the room would be like, oh, it's terrible. Don't be a teacher. Or, you know, you, you sort of would say as this open-eyed person, young, mm. thinking, I'm going to be these I have these aspirations, and I feel like there was a lot of messaging that, well, no, you're, you're not going to be happy if you do all that. It doesn't matter. And I think, so our older generations who are interested perhaps have checked the things off, and they're realizing I'm not happy. The younger people are kind of hearing that message, and I think there's just a, a curiosity now. Okay, so it doesn't work. The fancy car and doesn't get me the <laughs> beautific smiles that I see in the commercials, right? Mm -hmm. The next iPhone doesn't bring me that joy and sustained contentment mm -hmm. that it looks like the person on the you know huge billboard has when they're holding their iPhone so lovingly. So, so what is it? Like, what, where, what do we know now? At the same time, there has been this growing scientific inquiry and there's enough data to, to feel comfortable as a scientific community making some assertions about what's likely to, to be promising in the, in the sphere of how can I be happy. So all those things coming together, I think, has really driven this interest. Well, I'd like to dive into some of those, some of those pieces, mm -hmm. you know, that kind of make up the happiness. Yeah. And before I do, I want to share, I want to kind of get your reflection on a... Um, I guess it's like clarifying happiness as a term. Yeah. You know, because it's kind of like God or love. Yeah. You know, like, like <laughs> shit, what does that mean? You yeah. know, like there's so many different interpretations. There's a social researcher here in Australia who we'll have a lot of respect for. And I'd just be curious to know what, he, what, what you think about what sure. he said. Because he said, you know, the pursuit of happiness, he said, can be a dangerous idea. And has and led the, to a contemporary disease in Western society, which is what he calls a fear of sadness. He said, we're kind of teaching our kids that happiness is the default position. Wholeness is what we ought to be striving for. And part of that is sadness, disappointment, frustration, failure, all of those things which make us who we are. I share that with you. I kind of know already enough about you to know that this isn't in yeah. contrary to what he's saying. But I'd like you to kind of talk about that because I feel like there's like a whole bunch of uh, expectations that have been set up through that kind of happiness movement yeah. that I kind of agree with him. And I'd just be curious to know before we go into that, like what you, how you frame all that. I, I agree with him 100%. Um, defining happiness is not a trivial exercise. And a lot of people walking around in the world have a different idea of what happiness is than what the science would suggest is really important for happiness. Certainly, um, all of the evidence that I've reviewed suggests that a rich and diverse emotional palette is critical to happiness. So we've evolved with this myriad of states that respond to specific challenges that the environment presents us with. If, if we're um, if we experience something wonderful, good feelings is, is the right response to that, right? If we experience an irrevocable loss, good feelings is not the right response to that. That is actually a diseased state, right? Someone who, who just exhibits that kind of emotion in the face of loss is not doing well. When you experience loss, 
experiencing sadness is 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 what we've adapted, what we've evolved to express and and to feel, and the expression, right, the quality of of the face and the body that ar- emerges when you're feeling sadness has a very specific purpose, which is to attract other people towards you who lend you support, right? It's a basic quality of our, of our social, socialness is to exhibit sadness when we're feel, we have the causes for sadness and, and for that expression to draw others towards us in, in that experience of recovery from the insult that has caused the sadness. So sadness is very important. Anger, human beings experience conflict. It's, it's, it's not something I would ever dream of aspiring to get rid of. Uh, you only have one child. <laughs> so maybe this isn't as prevalent in your daily experience, you know, but anybody who has more than one child knows how frequently young kids get into conflict about stuff that you couldn't even imagine getting into conflict about, right? Like you're really, you know, upset at each other about this mundane issue. It's part of our kind of heritage to look at what is happening and figure out if there's some reason why we think it should be happening differently. And, and, and that when it doesn't, when something about what we think we want doesn't happen, anger and conflict is real. And having that potential for anger and conflict is really a vehicle for transformation. Right? If you don't appreciate something in your workplace because it feels unfair, if you didn't have anger, nothing would change. Right? And there are many cultural histories where people in power have, have really made it difficult for people who are disempowered to express or exhibit or feel anger and, and in order to preserve you know, dire inequality. So that anger that they're not allowed to express becomes a harm to their health, their physical health, let alone their well-being, right? So anger is really an important emotional experience, right? The trick is not to try to experience persistent, everlasting joy or to gratify every desire very quickly and in succession, right? That is not what we think happiness means at all. In fact, that is something more along the lines of being at risk for mania, again, a diseased state, right? So. Because um, I have to admit, like, like I've been at certain events mm-hmm. where like happiness has been the the thing, you know, like the main topic, and mm-hmm. I can I nearly feel kind of exhausted at mm-hmm. the end of it because it's it's felt like a permanent kind of tin grin, yeah. you know, that it's kind of on stage, and I'm like, what, what, what? And I don't feel that with you guys, uh-huh. you know, like when we've kind of conversed and I've seen you got your material, mm-hmm. like, oh, I actually feel kind of like it's trustworthy, it's grounded, and yeah. it's kind of human. But there's also this kind of deviation that's kind of happened uh-huh. with the happiness stuff that makes me sad in a way because mm-hmm. I don't feel like I can trust it because it's kind of it's existing at a within a certain range yeah. of emotion. Uh-huh. I just go, I just find myself kind of repelling yeah. from that or recoiling, I should say. From yeah. That. Well, and there's several studies now that that, that have reported the perils of approaching happiness in that way, of, of seeking happiness in this unbridled pleasure or 
I don't even want to call it pleasure because it's not just that. It's just enjoyment. And I want to be constantly experiencing enjoyment. I want to be smiling and chipper all day. I want my cheeks to hurt from that permagrin that I'm maintaining out of, of whatever, this happiness. But I just think that that's uh, an inaccurate way to define happiness. And, and, and when people define it that way and then seek it that way, it actually is harmful. They end up being less happy than people who aren't seeking happiness to begin with. And this is work being done at UC Berkeley by Iris Moss. Just, and June Gruber is another great thinker in this space. And she's, just, she's a person who studies bipolar disorder. And she talks about the perils of like feeling like you need to be happy all the time, even perhaps in inappropriate moments. Now, getting through negative emotions quickly, recovering from them, having the kinds of deep and meaningful social connections that bring support in those difficult moments or that enable you to reconcile conflict, that is super important to happiness, mm -hmm. right? Those things matter a lot. If you're somebody who, you know, gets into this ruminative brooding about everything horrible that happens and that could happen and has happened, you're not going to be one who falls into the category of very happy people, right? If you're one who just feels angry and just holds on to it and stews and grudges, again, takes years off your life and you're not happy, right? So, so resilience, being able to get through these difficult emotions, uh, challenging, negative quote-unquote emotions, uh, and I put them in quotes just because I don't want to sound negative like you should try to avoid it, but they're negative in that people tend to report them as, as not good feelings, right? Getting through them is really, really essential to happiness. Mm. Trying to avoid them is not good for happiness. Trying to suppress them, not good for happiness and not good for your physical health either. Mm. So how do you define happiness? How does, what does happiness as the center or from your course, how do you represent that, given that there are so many kind of misrepresentations? Yeah, I mean, sometimes uh, if I'm giving a talk on happiness, I will flash up on a PowerPoint slide um, Sonia Lubomirsky's uh, definition. And she basically says happiness is having a sense of meaning and purpose in life, uh, having an easy time experiencing positive states, and um, being pretty resilient. Um, and, and I'm paraphrasing. She says it much more elegantly than that. <laughs> but when I define it, I really do. I use three very similar pillars. Happiness is about a general positivity. And, and what I mean by that, again, is, is having an easy time of feeling amused and, and day in and day out. Or, you know, being able to, you know, arrive at gratitude in easily in different moments of the day. Uh, sure, you experience the negative states, but you get through them quickly. Um, but let me, let me let that meander into the second pillar, which I would call resilience. So being able to manage difficulties and access the social contacts that support you through difficult times and really bring you peace in those moments of, of challenge. Um, so positivity, uh, resilience, and connection. So just having a strong um, network, and, and I want to make sure that people don't think that when I say strong, I mean large. You know, it doesn't mean you have to have 50,000 friends on Facebook or even 
hundred really having a strong social connection is at least one person in the world who you know you could turn to when things were difficult and that you would feel comfortable asking for help from and it's important to have the second half of this who you know would turn to you who you know relies on you in times of difficulty in their life so having that sense of basic belonging in a social context is really important to happiness so it's not a perfect easy happiness is dot 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 happiness is it is a little bit like the baking a cake model but it's not made out of successes and status and lots of personal material possessions mm -hmm. right it's again made out of generally having an easy time feeling good getting through the difficult moments fairly elegantly and having other people who you can really count on mm. I think what's also so powerful about your work is that you've kind of, I mean, there is like a scientific kind of underpinning mm -hmm. to so much of this and yeah. so much that used to be um, kind of moral pursuits mm -hmm. or religious pursuits. Yeah. Um, it's like the science has really caught up mm -hmm. on so much of this. Yeah. Um, the other thing that's intriguing to me about the center is the kind of emphasis on human nature mm -hmm. being more fundamentally good mm -hmm. than what's classically been described uh, mm -hmm. as a kind of a cultural narrative, yeah. you know, and I think that's, that's, I don't know, that seems like a radical position to be taking. Um, just love to hear your thoughts around that. Yeah, because I mean, I hear that and I think the implications of actually seeing humans and seeing each other mm -hmm. as fundamentally good as opposed to the narrative of kind of warlike and competitive and mm -hmm. sinful and all these things that come from these different historical and religious traditions that yeah. kind of sit in our beings and in yeah. our subconscious that affects everything. Yeah. Um, what you're suggesting there. So I'd just be curious to hear what you've kind of got to say about that. You know, my favourite way to frame that issue is to again share quotes from Charles Darwin because so many people walk around with this very simplified set of words survival of the fittest in their head right and, and to so many people fittest means strong fighter uh, able to overcome and exploit others for one's own good right that's somehow I'm not sure really where that all came from. Um, Freud, you know, a revolutionary psychoanalyst, you know, really changed the way people were willing to think about and talk about mental life. But some of his models really, you know, serve this narrative that humans are pretty much out of control, brutish, self-interested, savage beings and really somehow we can just figure out how to control it we'll be okay right um, there's just really little evidence for that so starting back to Darwin when you really look at what he wrote in his books you know expression of emotion in humans and animals there's all this mention of sympathy and love and how important they are to survival and that the species that will survive best are the ones that show the greatest amount of care. You know, humans aren't solitary organisms, right? Our, our method isn't really about 
functioning as individuals, right? We have evolved in this ultra-social context. You know, we have physiological systems dedicated to understanding and communicating with each other. Our feats, our major accomplishments have all been dramatically collective, right? There's few single individual human beings that have somehow changed the world in a remarkable way. There's always a group, there's always some kind of collective that has built whatever it is that we're so proud of. So from Darwin to, again, the sort of trajectory of human history, there is so much more, there's so much more examples of success through collective, dare I say, democratic kind of achievement than through monarchy and tyranny and one person having all the power, right? We are hierarchical as a species. We, we do kind of <laughs> emerge from other species that have strong hierarchies. And there are reasons why hier hierarchy can be really beneficial, but it's also like many aspects of mental life, a bell curve where there's sort of a healthy level of hierarchy and then as you get further to the more dramatic and, and, and stratified hierarchy or perhaps no hierarchy at all on the other uh, extreme, things get more complicated and, and difficult and challenging. So, I mean, I just don't think it bears out in the science. It doesn't, there, there isn't evidence to suggest that we really like hurting each other. Right, that that's somehow a very satisfying, healthy experience. Mm -hmm. In fact, harming other people is painful to ourselves, unless you are diseased, right? Mm -hmm. Unless you are a sociopath, that the average person really doesn't like seeing other people in pain, mm -hmm. right? So, yeah, I mean, I, I just think it's a, I'm, I'm not sure why we have ended up with such a pervasive myth. Um, the other pervasive myth that is kind of similar is the idea that, you know, emotions are the enemy of reason, right? And they, okay, they came from Plato, right? He's thinking about rational thought. And you know, there's all this great evidence that without emotions, it's one of the other reasons I was drawn to this field, um, you know, patients that have damage to their orbital frontal cortex are not able to utilize their emotional kind of information in their decision-making processes. They function really well when it comes to an IQ test. They can perform mathematical fun functions. They can sort of solve logical problems, but they actually can't function as normal human beings in an in a organized society. They make impulsive, poor decisions. They share inappropriate information. Um, it, it's, you need your emotions. Right? Emotions are really important to making appropriate decisions and to functioning in a social collective. So, yeah, it's just one of those myths, hmm. this idea that we're brutish and meant to be totally self-interested. I mean, we're also incredibly dedicated to our young, hmm. right? Hmm. We don't just give birth and say, all right, you got it. We're, I'm, you know, here's 10,000 of you. I'm going to go and, and find some more food, right? Hmm. We have one at a time, maybe two, maybe three, depends, of course. And it takes an incredible amount of effort, incredible sacrifice. We're totally dedicated, and we, and we say we love it, <laughs> right? Yeah. It's the most beautiful, wonderful thing, mm. and it's m more sacrifice than perhaps we've ever made in our lives. Mm. So, again, to me, that's just clear evidence that biologically 
we're, 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 we're meant to dedicate ourselves to others. Mm. We're built for that. So could you talk a little bit more about that? Because you're kind of suggesting that there's a, um, like a wiring or mm -hmm. a, um, that's part of our kind of biology that, yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm just really curious to know what, what points to that within yeah. our kind of bodily makeup. So the below the neck narrative is the vagus nerve and Steve Porges, who was a wonderful researcher looking at the vagus nerve and, and it, it, it affects lots of physiological systems, but the place where we can really measure it best is its influence on the heart. And what it does is it slows down your heart rate when you're exhaling. So for a moment, imagine that you thought something really terrible was gonna happen and then you realized it totally was not gonna happen. Like what would your reaction to that be? Relief. Right, and, and when you experience relief, what happens? Just, just try to Sigh. like do it for a second, yeah. <sighs> right, we, we often sort of pucker our lips, slow our exhale, right, and, and, and take a deep, breath, okay? That physiological action is basically our own way to turn on our vagus nerve. Like we're making it, we're forcing our breath to come out slower, right. which extends our exhale and engages our vagus nerve in slowing down our heart rate during that exhale, okay? And where is the vagus nerve? So the vagus nerve comes out of your brainstem and basically goes down, downward in your body and projects to many different places wow. in your so body. So it's like a tentacle kind of... Yeah, right. yeah, vagus means wandering. So, okay. and, and the early anatomists called it that because basically it had so many like different fingers that went to different systems. Yeah. Um, and, and really where it goes largely supports a physiological state that is that is sort of characteristic of how we feel when we feel safe and like we want to approach and affiliate with others. Mm. So it's kind of the contrary to stress physiology. So cortisol and the other hormones that make us anxious and tense and, and really vigilant to threat, right? Those are the contrary to the vagus nerve. When, when those are not apparent, the vagus nerve is more involved in sort of dictating the internal milieu. And when it does, we again feel like approaching others. We feel more empathic. We're more attuned to others around us. So below the neck, we have this kind of um, you know, milieu of systems that all get kind of influenced by the vagus nerve in a way that makes us feel more willing and trusting of others, more, more outgoing. Um, above the neck, so now we're going to get into. Before, before you go above yeah. the neck, how does so how does the vagus nerve get activated? Like in the like, is there something I can do or we can do to support the vagus nerve, like coming yeah. on in a strong, stronger kind of way? So, the most religious traditions that have some kind of practice have some kind of practice that involves paying attention to your breath, noticing your breath. Right. It, most obvious one might be the Buddhist practices where people really do say, let's let's notice our breath. Yoga, oftentimes notice your breath. So noticing your breath is a way to slow it down. That's often what happens when you start to notice your breath. And in particular, you might even have been instructed to breathe in really deeply and then breathe out in a way that's like makes the out breath twice as long. 
Yeah. Again, those kind of practices are just the mechanical ways to get your vagus nerve to be more involved or engaged in a particular moment. Yeah. Um, physical exercise, being somebody who has a habit of physical exercise, those people tend to have higher what you would call vagal tone, mm -hmm. kind of like muscle tone. Their vagus nerves are just more involved chronically in their general day-to-day -day experiences. Um, the vagus nerve responds to social connection, responds to the urge to care give. So being compassionate, feeling compassion actually engages the vagus nerve. So it, it is kind of a circular um, narrative there, right? That if you feel compassion, you're engaging your vagus nerve. If you engage your vagus nerve, you're more likely to feel compassion. Many of these narratives are like that, right? To, to feel a positive emotion it becomes easier to feel positive emotion later. Mm. So, um, yeah, I, I, I mean, paying attention to your breath. If I think about like a kid, I might say pretend you're blowing out birthday candles and you have a lot of them. Pretend it's your you know 19th birthday instead of your third birthday mm. or seventh birthday, mm. right? I might say try to blow a pinwheel, mm. right? But really just kind of getting that out breath to slow down is a way to calm the body sort of uh, maybe slow down the uh, vigilance systems that, that are very reactive. And we also have to be vigilant to threat, right? You don't want to be so kind of relaxed that you don't hear a honking car coming in your direction, right? Mm -hmm. we got to notice the things that really are threatening. But I think as a, as a culture, at least in the U.S., we probably engage those threat and stress systems a little bit more for more existential things than is healthy. Mm. Mm. So. Cool. So going above the neck? Okay. So above the neck, um, there's there are three main systems that we like to talk about. Uh, one is this low in the brain caregiving circuitry. So medial preoptic area, hypothalamus. Um, these structures we know from animal studies, if you disable them somehow um, in a parent, uh, usually they're looking at the mothers and they're looking at rats, the mother won't really attend to their offspring's needs anymore. They won't kind of get into the right position that they need to get in just mechanically for the pups to be able to nurse. Um, they won't protect them if an intruder comes in. So there are these very low in the brain systems that are flooded with receptors and um, cells that, that release oxytocin that are critical for caregiving and nurturance behaviors. And we know that when people are asked to extend a kind of feeling of unlimited love, and, and I'm using the language of the, of the studies themselves, or in our study, it just perceive things that elicit compassion, um, that uh, these structures are involved, they're called upon, right? Mm -hmm. That's that that desire, that urge to care give, is associated with very low in the brain systems. And what I mean by low the low in the brain is that they're evolutionarily super old. They're not like the neocortex that helps us be really clever <laughs> and mm -hmm. think in the past and the future and the present all at the same time to solve a problem, right? These mm -hmm. are systems that, at a very deep level, are part of our humanity mm -hmm. and drive us to be concerned in, with the welfare of others. Um, the, part of our survival as yeah, well. Yeah, exactly. Right? So going back to that original That's right. narrative, the biology is pointing to very old parts That's right. of, our, of our structure. That's right. Yeah. That's right, that are really important. Um, 
There's a big science about oxytocin too, which perhaps you've heard about, not OxyContin, <laughs> oxytocin. Mm -hmm. um, what we know is that um, we're unique. Humans are unique as mammals in the uh, quantity of oxytocin that our nervous system uses and produces. Uh, oxytocin has been associated with um, long-term bond, social bonds. So in the classic study done by Sue Carter, there were, there were two different kinds of voles. So a vole is a, a small rodent. Mm -hmm. One strain was uh, polygamous. So the male would have many, many different um, uh, partners for their offspring. And the other strain was monogamous. They would sort of pair up and have offspring and, and stay together for a long time. And they looked the same. And so looking at what, what, what differentiated them, it turns out it was the, again, manufacturing and utilization of oxytocin that, that characterized the more monogamous. And now they weren't monogamous in the sense that, you know, there was mole divorce or whatever, <laughs> vole divorce. But, you know, in any case, they, they formed long-term social bonds that they held onto for a long time and that mattered to their survival and their environment. So we're like that, right? Mm -hmm. We form these long-term social bonds and we, we hold on to them for a long time in order to support our, our, our livelihoods and our lifestyles and, and our, and our well-being. Um, so oxytocin. And, and again, oxytocin too is, from what I understand, is it kind of elicited through touch and that's physical right. stuff as well, right? So when your own body releases oxytocin in moments of closeness and mutual trust. Mm. So um, mother's bodies release oxytocin, not only for sort of childbirth and, and breastfeeding context, but also for that sense of, how should I put it, being mesmerized with affection by this little small helpless thing. And mm -hmm. father's bodies show increases in oxytocin with infant parent, -parent touch. Mm -hmm. So there are all these interesting social contexts under which oxytocin gets released. Oxytocin is also very important for intimate relation experiences. Um, and uh, it, it's pleasurable. Right when your body releases oxytocin, it, it, people report that as being a positive feeling, something mm. that feels nice. Um, I was thinking about that the other day in relation to like a lot of traditional cultures, like in the New Zealand uh, Maoris. Uh -huh. They when they greet, they touch noses with yeah. one another, as you would, you probably know. And you know, even the Tibetans when they kind of go forehead to forehead, mm -hmm. you know, there's a lot of this kind of physical, like they're touching one another in the greeting. Yeah. And I wonder whether when that's happening, whether there is that release of oxytocin or release of something that actually, or just in comparison to it, like a handshake or that's much, much more standoffish and how that would influence like a culture to actually have more touch and how yeah. we're actually a culture that's very yeah. standoffish now. Yeah, you yeah. Know? You know. And even there's quite a criticism, I even find that even that phrase touchy-feely yeah. as a, that's a negative thing and I yeah. can I understand the negative association <laughs> with that yeah. and yet when you actually think about the word itself like touch and feel there's such positive things yeah. in this realm that you don't want to kind of dismiss them too much you know like well yeah I can't actually you know when it's not actually really considered as what are the implications of actually missing that kind of stuff. I think the implications are not good. I think that we're uh, in the West, we're super touch deprived. And Dacker loves to tell this story um, in early, in his early academic studies, he 
you know, did this classic social psychology experiment where they went to a couple different places in the world and basically watched people having conversations to see how frequently they touched each other. Mm. And in, you know, France, it was like, you know, 26 times a minute. And England, it was like, you know, once every five minutes. <laughs> in the U.S., maybe it was four times a minute. In Puerto Rico, it was like 327 <laughs> times a minute, right? Mm -hmm. So there are big cultural influences on how much people touch each other, and our primate predecessors touch each other a whole lot, right? Mm -hmm. uh, there's a lot of touch going on from, you know, nitpicking to just being you know, sitting in physical contact with each other as a means of, again, building trust. So absolutely. I mean, I this isn't coming from a, a I don't have a, an empirical reference for this suggestion that if a culture functions on a basic uh, uh, norm of touching foreheads upon greeting, that that is going to be a more trusting culture than, than one that, that never touches. But I do know that when you look in schools, and this was a study done in France, if you have teachers spontaneously uh, touch certain students and then not touch other students and later in the day invite them to come up, all the students to come up and solve a problem on the blackboard, the ones who had been touched are 50% more likely to stand up and go do that. Mm -hmm. So there's something about even the like slightest, most you know, perhaps unnoticeable physical contact possibility that leads to this sense of social trust, a mm. sense that we are kind of, we're, we're safe around each other and that that's makes us, make, gives an opportunity for doing something interesting. Yeah. So, yeah, so yeah. oxytocin is super interesting. You know, there's a whole nother body of science where people have um, made oxytocin inhalers. So you have a little kind of nasal spray and they'll take two people and they'll put them at a table and, and you know, in one pair they'll have oxytocin little sprays and another pair they'll have some other inert sprays, the control condition so nobody knows what's happening and they'll have them play a game. And those who got the oxytocin are, are way more generous and cooperative in their game than those mm -hmm. who got the, you know, neutral saline spray. So. Yeah, we know that oxytocin is involved and important for that sense of trust, and touch is certainly a, a way to sort of get oxytocin going. Mm. Just as a side note, because I want to get back to these other pieces as yeah. well, is I had a friend who used to, well, she didn't used to, she still does, um, and she's in a relationship, and um, there's always those kind of moments about how close you get to people who are in committed relationships. Sure. I am, she is. Sure. But she would, um, when we would say goodbye or, or have these moments, she would just put her cheek mm -hmm. up against my cheek. Mm -hmm. and it's kind of like an unusual kind of posture, mm -hmm. but it was such a beautiful thing to mm -hmm. do and, the, and, and talk about the trust and the sense of love that I have yeah. for her just through the act of her yeah. going, putting up her cheek against my cheek. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, it just kind of comes to my mind. Yeah, that's really that. cool. I mean, yeah. as you're saying it, it makes, I think I do that to my children all the time, yeah. whether they like it or not. Interesting. <laughs> right? I yeah. go over and put my cheek against theirs. And yeah. so, yeah, that's really, that's really interesting. Yeah. Lovely. Other. I'm going to start doing that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, so the other two systems that I talk yeah. about. Um, you know, there are two networks that are really important for social understanding. One of them more involved in 
sort of what we would call affective empathy, which means feeling moved by somebody else's emotion. So if you express an emotion, I have a feeling in my body and my brain registers that feeling. That feeling is involuntary. It's reflexive, right? My face might even mimic the facial expression that you're showing, even though nothing's happened to me, right? That same thing isn't part of my context, but I am built to essentially mirror and or feel moved by your experience. And this helps me understand where you're at and what it is that I might be able to do to either support you if you're exhibiting something not so desirable or perhaps, you know, maximize the fun if you're if you're laughing, right? And we've all walked into a room full of laughing people and you just start laughing even though you don't know what they're laughing about, right? Mm. This is this basic empathic empathy um, I'm sorry, uh, affective empathy, which is known to solicit activation in a structure of the brain called the insula, the anterior insula. And that area really signals something's going on in your body. Something has changed viscerally. And so again, we know that when we witness other people's emotional expressions, we have a, a response to that. Um, the second system is higher order. It's in, in engaged is this kind of neocortex structures that are more important for visual ac um, expertise. So you might become somebody who enjoys looking at birds and looking at their very particular qualities and shapes and colors and then naming those. Should you be that kind of person, you're going to strengthen and uh, sort of increase the density of connections in a, a structure, or a set of structures in the temporal parietal junction, which is between your temporal lobe and your parietal lobe, and it's part of your you know, higher order visual you know, brain uh, uh, kind of manifestation. Turns out this same area is what helps you become a remarkable expert at understanding the meaning of other people's emotional expressions. And perhaps as you get older, get in three or four, understand why they might feel that way, right? To take their perspective. Mm -hmm. So without any dedicated effort or particular training or practice, young people, young humans, number one, immediately start mirroring the people around them, right? You've probably had that experience multiple mm -hmm. times with your own child, right? Mm -hmm. Where you make a particular face and he makes the same face at you. This is you know, affective empathy. He feels something. If you've had a particular feeling, and, and it's not related to him, but you're holding or close to him, you probably noticed he does something different. Like he can feel that you're feeling a particular way and, he, and it affects him also. Um, later, he'll start to look at the world and understand that he sees the world one way and you see the world a different way. And he'll start to try to understand and name and relate to you according to what he has come to believe or become an expert at knowing what what, what it means to be where you are, right? And what it means to have that particular tone of voice or to have your facial, facial muscles in a particular configuration. Um, so our brains do this, right? They develop these very sophisticated tools for understanding, predicting, and relating to others. It's not something that, um, that, that, that is taught through politeness, right? It simply happens when there's contact 
much like language happens, right? If you're around language, you develop language. If you're around other human beings, you develop these pro-social affordances, right? You like to be around people. You like to have their company and connection. Of course, you know, I'm not speaking about unfortunate and, you know, sad scenarios where people grow up in environments where they aren't treated kindly or when they aren't safe. When, the, when that happens, the brain responds in a particular way that makes it more difficult for that person to have trusting, safe relationships as an adult. Um, it's not, it's not a, a impossible, but it just becomes more difficult. So yeah, so we've got these kind of affective empathy and, and the second set are the cognitive empathy systems that again come online a little bit later as you become a visual expert in the emotions uh, and, and expressions of others. The last system is the dopamine reward system. Okay, so dopamine reward system has always been famous for the classic Olds and Milner rat presses a lever to get the, the embedded electrode that they dropped into that area to sort of fizzle for a minute, right? When you do that, the rat pushes it. It's sort of like, it's a, it's a narrative that tries to explain drugs of abuse, right? Where, you know, if you become an addict to a particular substance, that's the system that gets co-opted. If I put you in a scanner and I tell you you're have you play a game and you win certain blocks and you lose certain blocks and on the ones you win I tell you well you're going to get a five dollar prize for that, your dopamine reward system comes on. It's like yay something good's happening. So we've always thought of it in this kind of like signaling pleasure or signaling some kind of new asset or resource way. Um, more recently though, uh, Bill Harbaugh did a study where he had. People play a game where sometimes they won their prize, but sometimes they had to give their prize away to a charity. And they just had to push a button to say, okay, I know. I know that I, I did a good on that task and I'm getting $10, but I'm actually immediately giving it to this charity. And then there's another trial where they go, oh, you get the $10 yourself. And the point was to try to see like what happens in the brain between these two conditions where in one you're getting it and the other one you're giving it away and acknowledging that you're getting it away. And to his surprise, the same dopamine circuits lit up in both contexts, right? So there's something inherently pleasurable about contributing to the welfare of, 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 the, of others. Yeah. Tristan Inagaki at UCLA, similar study, brought couples into the lab. One of them was laying in the scanner. The other one is standing outside. The one standing outside is getting shocked, right? Painful stimulus, not like horrible, but painful. The one inside is told that they can kind of hold the one outside's arm like, and, and support them. Like, I, okay, I'm here. I know that's, it's a bummer that you're going to get this painful thing, but I'm here for you, right? The comparison condition is they hold like a rubber ball that's arm-sized. Um, turns out when that person in the scanner is in the condition where they're supporting their friend who's getting shocked, reward activation, right? Hmm. So dopamine reward circuits are... We like supporting people. We like knowing we're the ones who are making something easier or less painful for someone else. Uh, Elizabeth Dunn has followed that 
sort of, well, I don't know if she's a follower or if she's just contributed importantly to that kind of tradition with her work looking at um, where, you, where people spend their money. So she gives half the people $20 and says, okay, I'm going to measure your happiness. And then you go spend the $20 on yourself and I'm going to measure your happiness again. Other half, I'm going to measure your happiness. Here's $20, go spend it on someone else. And then measure your happiness again. And shows systematically all around the world, wherever she looks, people who spend on others have a bigger change and, and boost in happiness than the people who go and spend on themselves. So there's all this kind of redundant evidence coming in to show that this basic system that we thought was all about self-interest and pleasure and maximizing material things for the self is equally sensitive and committed to making it feel good, reinforcing our behaviors that benefit others. So that's my roundup of the physiology well, yeah. <laughs> and it's and it's you know it's, it's so important because i think um you know i still think compassion or kindness or these notions are still uh considered secondary yeah. and you know we'll deal with them later that's not really the primary stuff we need to deal with and yet when you talk about the the impacts that this has on people yeah. you know in their states yeah. um and to have narratives that actually support generosity and such, mm-hmm. you know, it just has such a huge impact. I can, you know, it, it would have such a huge impact, not just on individuals, but on cultures and such. And um, I'm curious to know, like within your courses and such, because I think the next step for me is um, uh, how do people cultivate that? How do people yeah. cultivate like that actively in their lives, you yeah. know, and also, is this kind of scientific things that are kind of or practices or whatever that are kind of proven to increase that ability to actually have more of that in your life? Yeah, yeah. Well, let me use gratitude as the exemplar hmm. because it's it's got a really clean story. Yeah. Um, Bob Emmons, Robert Emmons, professor at UC Davis, psychologist, became really interested in gratitude about 20 years ago. And he started measuring gratitude in people and then looking at what else was going on in their lives. And what he found was that people who scored higher on sort of dispositional gratitude were happier. They were healthier. They complained less about physical ailments. Um, They lived longer. They were more satisfied in their relationships. They were more resilient to stress. So kind of anything he looked at, they did better. And whenever that happens, there's always the question, which you just asked, well, okay, well, is that it? Are you just like born with more gratitude and then you're the lucky one and another person is born with less? And, or is it something about you know, your parental matrix and some parents really did the right thing in making you grow up into a grateful person and other parents did you know, something different that made you less grateful? And is, is there some mobility there? Is, can we, is, is the system malleable? So quite simply, um, <laughs> Bob Emmons' next study was, okay, how do I make people become more grateful? How about I just have them like journal about it? And so thus became the gratitude journal study where he had some people go home at night and write down three things they were grateful for. He had a control condition where people wrote down either something really mundane about their day, like, and how many doors they walked through, or even like a hassles condition, like what was kind of irritable for them that day, what, what, got, what was frustrating. And what he found was after you know, his designated time period, one week, three weeks, it's been done a couple times now, um, 
that exercise, keeping a gratitude journal, led to increases in gratitude and in concert benefits in these other kind of measures that I listed before. So people who did a gratitude journal were happier. They were less stressed. They were less likely to complain about, you know, having a skin rash or um, a stomach ache or headaches, things like that. So thus came this space of studying not just the quality or characteristic, but also some practice or exercise that could strengthen that. And I think now in the, in the kind of time of neuroplasticity, right, which I'm happy to say, because when I was in an undergrad first studying neuroscience, the narrative was really different. It was, you know, some things are genes and some things are environment and that's it. And, you know, it is, it was much more like a luck of the draw kind of scenario. But now we know that your behavior day in and day out is continuously and constantly shaping the kind of strength of connections, the density of connections between your neurons, and that this really kind of creates your conscious experience. Mm. And so if you decide, well, I'm going to very deliberately exercise gratitude, right, <laughs> multiple times for the next month, gratitude is just gonna be easier to feel, right? And then you're kind of chronically a more grateful person, and that comes with other kinds of benefits. So in our course, each week we suggest a study, I'm sorry, a practice, which is tied to the particular theme of that week. So the first week we really just define happiness and talk about what its main qualities are. And we suggest the three good things practice, which is kind of similar to the gratitude practice. Um, but it's really kind of a, an exercise in optimism, right? Mm -hmm. right? Sort of tuning your consciousness to, to notice and, and spontaneously attune to the good things that have happened to you mm -hmm. instead of noticing and spontaneously attuning to the challenging, frightening, anxiety-provoking things that have happened to you. Mm. Um, second week, uh, we suggest a practice in active listening, right, as an exercise in empathy, as an exercise in really attuning into the language and expressions of another person. Third week, what do we do in the third week? Something that has to do with compassion. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I actually think in the third week, we, we, third week is both about compassion and reconciliation. Mm -hmm. And it's actually a very powerful week because people are very sensitive to forgiveness and apology, um, mm -hmm. at least in the U.S. People don't like apologizing and people don't like forgiving. And we've had a lot of people spontaneously mention in testimonials after the course, this was great, I loved it, but was really intense for me was the forgiveness section. There's a lot of people who I've been holding grudges towards for a very, very long time. And it was only in this course that I realized how beneficial it was for me personally to think about that differently and to perhaps consider forgiveness as a means to improving my own welfare, mm. right? To sort of moving on through a situation. So yeah, each week and week five is kind of a dense one. 
it's after the midterm week, so we had a little time off, but that's our week on mindfulness. And in that week, we offer three different practices because there's such a broad range of different ways that people practice and talk about mindfulness. We do just a breath awareness, which we've talked about, we do a body scan, and then we also suggest a loving kindness meditation. So all of those are part of week of that week. Uh, we do a couple narrative writing practices. There's a lot of evidence that Narrative uh, can be a very powerful way to recover from difficulties, to kind of work through challenges in life and become more resilient or experience growth from a traumatic experience. So, yeah, I think practicing, we only suggest practices for which there have been empirical, published, peer-reviewed studies where, where scientists have had some people do done, done what's called a randomized controlled trial, right? Mm. Where they say, okay, come and be in this study. You guys get condition one, you get condition two, you get condition three, and nobody knows what it is, and then you get it, and we measure before and we measure after, and we show that only specifically in the condition of interest, which is the particular practice, mm. is, is the change evident, so. Mm. I, I feel like you skipped over really quickly the nature versus nurture uh -huh. uh, that when you were in when you were in school yeah. that was the paradigm and now yeah. it's not and yet i think it might be like one of those scientific things that takes a while to actually yeah. get into the mainstream uh -huh. that that's no longer the 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 question yeah i'd just be because because also what you're pointing to too it's actually it in some ways that debate kind of lets a whole bunch of people off the hook as to uh -huh. what's what what's my active role in life yeah. Because yeah. I can either kind of go on one side or the other and just be curious to know, just yeah. to talk a little bit more about yeah. that. Yeah, I mean, I, I, it's such a great question because um, I do think that there is this uh, tendency to think I am who I am and kind of take me as I am and that's it. And, and there's nothing we can do about this. This is me. And, and there's something very positive about being self-aware and knowing kind of who you are and being conscious of, of the sorts of decisions and behaviors that you're, you're sort of meandering towards or away from. Um, but there's also something very flawed about the idea that you're fixed, that somehow who you are is not malleable. Um, what we know today is that born with some wonderfully complicated um, combination of, of, of genes, how they end up expressing in our lifetime has a lot to do with our environment. So it's not the case that you have certain genes for like eye color, which is not that flexible, right? And that everything in that space is just how it is. And then you have the possibility that your, you know, community or environmental context will help you to grow in, in other particular ways. We know that there's this deep kind of interplay and that genes, you, you, you come into the world with a certain genetic configuration that is looking for certain kinds of stimulus, certain kinds of input in the environment. And if it receives, you know, as, a, as an organism, if you receive certain kinds of input, then those genes express in the way that is most adaptive for that particular kind of in, in, input. Um, 
one of my favorite what's called epigenetics studies has to do with loneliness, right? Um, there's Steve Cole uh, re studied loneliness in, in an elderly population and was just really interested in, he's a geneticist by, by training, so really interested in whether there was something about the, the, the you know, presumed health uh, risks that come with being lonely based on the fact that people who are lonely don't live as long as people who are not lonely. And what his data revealed is that people who are lonely, they're the genes that dictate their immune response to the, in, the world around them, the environment, uh, kind of activate in a way or express in a way that their immune system is, is, is more sensitive to external circumstances that are not actually representative of, of how they live. Basically, they become hyperinflammatory, right? They have this exaggerated inflammation response, which is problematic in terms of your cardiovascular health and, and other ways. So, you know, in terms of the, an evolutionary narrative about that, if you really were isolated all by yourself in some environment, that might be the best way to, for your body to protect you from, from harm. If, if you truly were alone and there were no other human beings around, very few people actually, if, even if they are lonely, are in that circumstance. They're actually still around a lot of other human beings. And so their, nerve, their, their, their immune systems would do better not being hyperinflammatory, but being sensitive to the kinds of kind of encounters that come from being in a highly social context. Mm -hmm. um, so again, our genes are noticing what's happening in our environment and turning on and turning off the nuances of our physiological bodies in a way that responds to that environmental kind of context. Mm -hmm for better or for worse. So loneliness, it turns out, not so good. Mm. So empowering. It's such a, such a helpful, um, it's such a help, helpful view that, that, you know, as to what do I do with my life and the predicament of mm -hmm. how I feel and what I do and yeah. uh, it's wonderful. Well, I feel really lucky to be a person who, who gets to talk about it all the time because yeah. it, it really kind of forces me to walk the walk the walk right sure, sure. <laughs> I mean well, I, you yeah. know, I was just gonna say one of the things that happens I think when people either meet me or hear about my work or um, they just think oh she's got to be the happiest person in the world if she's this expert on happiness but mm. You know, I, I make a point of, of making it clear that, this, I mean, it takes work. Mm. I, every moment in my day is not something that is perfect and mm. well thought out and conscientious and mindful, right? Mm. I mean, life is full of challenges all the time. And uh, it has proven, you know, proven true for me that the more I invest in my relationships, the more I try to be open-hearted and available to other people, um, the less I suffer and the less they suffer. And um, I'm grateful for that. Mm. I've heard you say that um, it's doing a bit of internet stalking. And I think I, I think I, I think I saw you say something about 
kindness being the holy grail. Huh. Uh, do you remember saying that? And if you do, what do you, what, what do you mean by that? <laughs> that sounds good. Yeah. Did I say that? <laughs> <laughs> because, uh-huh. because, I mean, for the Waco Project, that's actually uh-huh. a, it's a really big thing for us is yeah. uh, kindness. And, um, you know, I think, it's, I think it kind of ends up for us if the, all the work we do, if it doesn't ultimately end up people feeling kinder towards themselves or other people mm-hmm. and kind of what's the point? Yeah. You know, like that's yeah. that's how we how it lands for us, yeah. I guess. Yeah. Um, and I'm just curious to know your thoughts about kindness. I mean, indeed, kindness in many ways is an, a terrifically um, has has so much potential for shifting one's personal experience in 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 daily life. It, it's if if you decide or if I decide, well, today or tomorrow or the next week, I'm just going to engage in a random act of kindness. And this is actually a legitimate happiness practice that has been um, there is evidence that it that it is beneficial and builds happiness. Given all that we've already talked about in terms of our sensitivity to being of service to others, right? The fact that we do experience pleasure in that moment, that that is something that fills us with a sense of meaning and purpose. Um, it just takes doing it to, to, to feel that, right? Sometimes we're not the best predictors of what is going to make us feel good and for how long, or what is going to make us feel bad and for how long. Um, Dan Gilbert at Harvard has written a book about happiness in which he lays out this bias in our thinking, which really relates to being ready to 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 respond to real threats, right? And and I think in our kind of evolution of uh, or environment of evolutionary adaptation, real threats were were prevalent, right? There were really were things that could harm us that we encountered day in and day out, and um, we had to be ready. It's not as in, in, in the sort of relatively middle class life that many people live in, in today's age. That doesn't happen that much. There aren't those kinds of threats. So we, we don't have to be anxious and worry that our kindness is not going to succeed, right? And, and, and I think that a little bit of us does walk around thinking like, well, should I be kind or should I just keep it to myself, right? And, and the, the desire to keep it to yourself in many ways comes from a worry that something's not going to work out well with the kindness. And so might as well just play it safe and keep it to ourselves. And that habit builds and builds and builds over time until we're sort of like, just don't even, it doesn't even occur to us to try the kindness. But when people do kind of come around and go, hmm, I'm going to try this. I've, I've read about it. I've heard about it. Sounds like it could be kind of cool. It's really hard for me. Like, I'm, I'm not that kind of person who goes out in the world and just says hello and smiles at someone I've never seen or holds the door open for a little bit longer so so someone can walk through or donates to a charitable cause that uh, sort of I encounter. Uh, Try it, right? And, And I guess that's the holy grail dimension is try it. Notice how good it feels. You'll want to try it again. Notice how good it feels and you'll want to try it again. 
Um, now, I know that there are some dark sides, right, to this kind of hyper-altruism or hyper-optimism, and I'm very aware that, that people can, that some have sort of taken some of this to an extreme that is just as bad as having none of it at all, right? I, I said earlier that there's sort of this bell curve dynamic that most psychological phenomena fall, where there's, there's a good balance level. Too much, not okay, not enough, not ideal either. So being so optimistic that you fail to notice contrary evidence or you don't listen to other people who are perhaps giving you important information that doesn't uh, you know, align with your beliefs or being so kind that you're not tending to your own needs as a person is nothing I would advocate or nothing that the science would advocate. So I just think that for many, the pendulum is a little bit far in the direction of self-interest and, and, and vigilance to rejection or harm or failure, when in fact, by far and away, the majority of the time when we're kind to others, we're met with enthusiasm and affirmation and a, a, a feeling of warmth and connection. Mm. When you think of kindness, who do you think of? Oh my goodness, who do I think of when I think of kindness? It's a great question. I, and this is going to sound so trite, but I think of my children, right? My 11-year-old my is this delightfully warm, loving human being who is always concerned with the, the welfare or the well-being of the people in the room. She's very thoughtful about that. My three-and-a-half-year-old is just really charming and, and thoughtful and um, loves to have conversations and, and, and notice things. And then my, my eight-year-old is, is like the, the joker. She's the clown. She's just so funny, and she wants everyone to be laughing and enjoying time together. They're, they're really an inspiration, you know, I, they remind me of the whole kind of range of human experience, and they're they come they come around. They don't hold grudges, right? Mm. There there's there's something about young people that is a good reminder of how to just transcend time and space in a dynamic and flexible way with this basic, you know, momentum towards connection and kindness. So I mm. think I think of them. Um, not my doing. <laughs> they're, they, they all came in the world really different, and they're just delightful beings. Um, I think of my, my academic mentor, Dacker. Dacker Keltner's a really thoughtful, um, generous, and attuned person who's always been really supportive and helped me figure out how to make a life of the things I'm most interested in. I'm grateful to him for that. Um, and then it's just people every day mm. walking around who, who surprise me, right? Who, who do laugh when I say something silly in a grocery line or who offer help when you know, I've got my hands full and a crying kid, right? Just, just people in the world tend to, tend to bring out kindness in a way that, that I'm grateful for and it gives me faith in humanity. Mm. Beautiful. And if people were to want to find out more about your work or the center's work, 
How yeah. do they do that? Best ways to do that? Well, the lucky thing is we're super easy to find. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, our website, greatergood.berkeley.edu. Um, you'll land on the homepage and there's all kinds of little buttons where you can say, I'm really interested in kindness or I'm really interested in empathy. And, and you'll go to a page where we'll have the most recent articles that we've written about scientific studies about these topics and any other basic information, definitions like that that you want to know. Uh, if you want the more structured educational experience, um, go to edX.org, edX.org, and, and search for happiness, and you'll see the science of happiness, which we offer every fall as a synchronous course. That means everybody starts together and goes through the course a week at a time and then finishes around uh, late November. That's wonderful. Well, I want to um, thank you again. Uh, for coming and spending time with us and also just acknowledge you for, your, for the work that you're doing. I think it's um, such, a, such a huge contribution to be kind of quantifying, you know, the things of the heart, the things of the soul that um, so need to be quantified to then be mainstreamed into kind of culture and our lives. And just want to thank you for being at the forefront of that and doing it, doing it in such a such an accessible way as well for people. Well, it's a pleasure, and, and as I've said before, it's a privilege. I, I really, I, I know I have one of the best jobs that, that, that a person could have, that I have to think about this stuff, read about it, and keep reminding myself, and teach, because for me, I don't really actually understand it until I have to teach it. <laughs> so the, that requirement uh, really, you know, it, it's my job is essentially to try to get happier myself by trying all these things that I'm <laughs> trying to encourage other people to try. And, and um, I'm, I'm super lucky. Mm. I'm super lucky for that. Mm. Thank you, Amelia. Yeah, thank you. Thanks so much for listening today. If you enjoy what we're up to here at The Wake Up Project, I'd really appreciate it if you took a few seconds to share this episode with your friends or leave a comment or review on iTunes. You know, this is the way that we can work together to make the world a little kinder. And if you want more inspiration and resources, come on over to wakeupproject.com and make sure you sign up for email updates. And while you're there at wakeupproject.com, don't forget to order your free pack of kindness cards. Yep, we'll mail them out to you for free. All we ask in return is that you send us a story of how you use these cards to make someone's day. I'm really grateful for your support. Now go and live a kind and courageous life.